Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast for the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, your host of the podcast and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers is an international organization devoted to the study of the sun, moon, planets, asteroids, meteors, and comets. Our goals are to stimulate, coordinate, and generally promote the study of these bodies using methods and instruments that are available within the communities of both amateur and professional astronomers. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon, and publishes those in, with detailed reports in the quarterly publication, the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, otherwise known as the Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the Observer's Notebook, you can donate it to it via Patreon by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5 you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you will receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com slash Observer's Notebook. A reminder, the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers maintains many individual observing sections and programs devoted to the study of various solar system bodies and phenomenon. Each is managed by one or more coordinators that collect and study the submitted observations. If you would like to join the ALPO, you can for as little as $14 a year. For more information, you can visit us on the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And now, The Observer's Notebook. All right, welcome everybody back to the podcast. Our special guest today is Dolores Hill. She's the coordinator for the meteorite section of the ALPO. Welcome to the podcast, Dolores. Thank you. Why don't you take a couple minutes and just give everybody a little bit about yourself. Well, um, my name is Dolores Hill, and uh, I've been interested in astronomy, meteors, and meteorites uh, all my life, essentially. Um, I've been fortunate enough to analyze meteorites here at the University of Arizona's Lunar and Planetary Lab um, since 1981. And um, now I work uh, on the OSIRIS-REx Asteroid Sample Return Mission, so I get to combine all of my uh, loves into one, uh, both meteorites and asteroids. That's great. I understand in 2013 you received some type of special honor? Oh, yes. Um, uh, I was uh, named a citizen scientist uh, for for change from the White House. That was pretty clumsy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, um, 
We yeah, we were recognized by the White House for the Target Asteroids program that is a citizen science project of the Osiris Rex mission. Um, and my colleague is Carl Hergenrother that you all oh. know, I'm sure. Yeah, as, I've interviewed him as well. Uh, he's both a comet and asteroid expert. Right. So we um, shared that honor. So what's the Target Asteroids? Uh, Target Asteroids is uh, a citizen science program that encourages amateur astronomers to image a particular list of asteroids uh, that the OSIRIS-REx mission is interested in, uh, as well as other um, spacecraft planners. Uh, The list includes uh, some brighter main belt asteroids that are carbonaceous asteroids that will help us understand Bennu, our target, uh, much better as well. Okay. How did you get involved with the ALPL? Oh, goodness. <laughs> um, I, just many, many years ago, um, uh, my husband Rick and I were interested in astronomy, and uh, he is a more serious observer than I am, and he joined the ALPO and uh, submitted all kinds of um, drawings and now images, and uh, I've always been interested as well. Uh, And many years ago, uh, Walter Haas asked me if I would be interested in forming a meteorite section, and um, so we did. Yeah, I think when I first communicated with you, I wasn't really aware of what a meteorite section was in the ALP because it's completely different than all all the other sections. Can you give us a little rundown? Yes. It's very different because, um, as you know, uh, not everyone can observe the same meteorite at the same time necessarily, uh, unless it's at an exhibition of some sort. Um, And so our focus is very different. Um, A lot of people want to go hunting for meteorites, which is wonderful. However, the section doesn't really promote that aspect because there are so many different rules on different kinds of land. And um, so I would prefer that people connect with um, expert meteorite hunters who already do that. Uh, So we don't focus on that aspect so much. Um, What we do encourage and focus on um, is for people who already have a meteorite collection or or happen to have a meteorite to learn more about it and to bring any information about that sample that might be of interest to professional meteoriticists. and so we actually do have some, uh, some um, potential projects uh, in progress that would allow people to do that without um, using sophisticated instrumentation that is normally required. Now, what sparked your interest in meteorites? Well, um, I observed my very first uh, Perseids meteor shower when I was uh, about fifth grade. Uh, I read an astronomy book and it said uh, August 12th uh, is the best time to look for meteors and it has to be after midnight, Mm -hmm. which uh, isn't exactly true, but uh, that's how I read it. And I was visiting... You just wanted to stay up late, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I was visiting my uh, grandparents, and my dear grandmother said, um, well, sure, honey, I'll set the alarm, and we'll all go out and look. So sure enough, she set the alarm clock, and um, she and my two sisters and I went out in our robes to the local park and uh, looked up at the sky, and I have never seen so many meteors in my life. It was fantastic. And that was it. Suddenly, um, I wanted to know what are they, where did they come from, why is there a shower on that night and no other. Um, And uh, years later, I was looking for someone who might be interested in my meteor shower observations. And um, at that time, nobody was very interested. Mm -hmm. But I met a woman who said, well... You know, I'm interested in them after they hit the ground. Hmm. And uh, so I thought, well, that's wonderful. And eventually she offered me a a position analyzing meteorites. So I was just thrilled. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to go about it. Oh, it was fantastic. And um, it was interesting because... We did so many things for the first time that it, I wasn't expected to know how to do it ahead of time. Nobody knew how. Mm-hmm. So um, I've, I've uh, spent uh, quite a career analyzing a wide variety of different kinds of meteorites and learned a lot along the way. Oh, okay, real basic. Now, how can you tell a rock from a meteorite? Oh, well, I actually have a little flow chart um, that I provide to people uh, that go step by step. And so the first thing we look for is, does it have a fusion crust or not? And and by fusion crust, what do you mean? Fusion crust is the outer melted portion of the meteorite that survived passage through our atmosphere. Okay, and it's darkish in color then, probably? If it's fresh, it's black. Okay. If it's not or has uh, struck the earth in some very temperate place like uh, Illinois or Michigan, uh, it might start to rust and turn brownish pretty quickly. Okay. Uh, and so it can be difficult to identify if it's old. Um, after that, uh, we look at the inside of the meteorite. Um, is it stony or metal? And uh, if it's metal, it better be composed of iron and nickel, but you can't tell that with your eyeballs necessarily. Um, If it's stony, the most common meteorites to fall on the earth are called ordinary chondrites. Those contain tiny one millimeter sized spherules called chondrules that formed in the very earliest part of the solar system before any of the asteroids or planets formed. And uh, sometimes those can be difficult to identify to the ordinary person as well. Um, And so the secondary um, item to look for are metal grains, little metal flecks. Again, they're usually a millimeter or less. mixed in with those chondrules. And, and the only way to see these things is probably by sectioning the, the meteor? A, a cut, or, or sometimes um, meteorite uh, collectors will, will call it making a window. So you could take a little 
um, sandpaper or a, a nail file and just make make a little little tiny quarter inch by quarter inch uh, window to see what's inside your rock. Oh, okay. So you don't have to cut it in half necessarily, but just enough area to, to view what's inside. Okay, so so the meteorite section focuses on on studying the meteorites that people find or have in their possession. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, where where do most of these meteorites come from? Oh goodness, um, all over. Uh, some people purchase their meteorites at gem and mineral shows. Some people uh, just are fortunate enough to happen to find one. Uh, we field a lot of questions from people who think they found one. As you can imagine, the vast majority turn out not to be meteorites, but that's okay. Um, usually it's an interesting rock of some sort, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we use it as a learning experience. You know, that's okay, but keep your eyes peeled. You might still still find one. Um, and... Uh, some people uh, receive them as gifts and want to know more about them. Yeah, I have one. I think I bought it at the Riverside Telescope Makers Conference. Oh, probably, okay. Probably ten years ago. I don't know anything about it. It's in a little oh. box, but I don't. Maybe I'll send it to you, and you can check it out. <laughs> sure. Or or we can help you uh, learn more about oh, it. Okay. So. Okay. Sounds um, good. We do have some people who've contacted us about interesting things they've seen in thin sections. And that's uh, always exciting because um, every meteorite and every slice of a meteorite has the potential to reveal something new to us. And so that's the thing I'm focusing on with the meteorite section is encouraging people to study their own samples and watch out for anything that might be different or anything that could be useful to a researcher studying a particular feature. Interesting. Now, I've heard the term meteorites from rain gutters. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Can, what, can you explain a little bit about that? Certainly. So first, I must uh, make a confession that for many, many years, um, I thought the whole concept was so difficult that it was just a feel-good project and essentially useless because there are so many um, things that can fall on a person's roof Mm -hmm. that are contaminants in the atmosphere um, that are not meteorites or micrometeorites and trying to find that needle in a haystack is just so difficult and time-consuming. However, that said, um, there is uh, a micrometeorite collector and a researcher who teamed up and did it correctly. And they've actually convinced me that uh, there is more hope in finding true micrometeoroids uh, than before. So they, they collected... Um, a variety of samples from all over the world and actually analyzed them uh, on different instruments. And these are from rain gutters? Rain gutters, roofs uh, of all different er areas, right. And 
they actually carefully classified thousands of these objects. So it's still a difficult prospect, but they at least were able to identify real uh, micrometeoroids um, using um, scanning electron microscopes and other instruments that would allow them at least a rough composition. And that's, that's the thing that really identifies around spherule as volcanic or, or micrometeoroid or some industrial pollutant. Now, when you talk micrometeoroid, how large are you talking? Oh, goodness. Um, definitely less than 100 microns. Okay. So way a lot smaller than a tenth of a millimeter. Okay. Right. I, I just know what the, what the general rule was when you talk that scale. Yeah, they're usually even smaller than that. Okay. Those would be considered very big ones. Um, and there have been professional expeditions to collect true micrometeoroids from the upper atmosphere uh, that have not been um, contaminated by terrestrial and man-made man activities. But even those um, have caught... Um, aerosols from the airplane itself that was collecting the uh, items uh, and even volcanic materials that were thrown way up into the atmosphere. uh, In addition, people thought, well, maybe Antarctica would be the best place to look for pristine samples. And up until recently, um, that has been the best place to look. Okay. All right. Yeah, it would seem that, though, once it hits the atmosphere, it's contaminated. I mean, that's... Uh, it is, but what I'm referring to are um, particles that are truly from outside Earth versus those that were generated by some activity on the Earth. Oh, okay. Whether natural or man, man-made. Okay, well, speaking of meteorites that did not come from Earth, what about uh, uh, ALH84001, the Martian meteorite? Do you know anything about that? Um, I know some. Um, again, I, I have to confess that my favorite kinds of meteorites are the chondrites. Okay. Because those are the oldest rocks in the entire solar system. Okay. But uh, we did analyze Allen Hills 84001. It was very exciting. Um, it was... Uh, what can I say? It definitely comes from Mars, and the entire suite of Martian meteorites um, has been confirmed to come from Mars, even though we haven't brought samples back because of all of the wonderful instrumentation that we've had on Martian spacecraft. That's just fascinating to me, that we, we can identify its location, exactly where it came from. Oh, okay. We can identify its parent body. That's what I meant, yeah. But uh, and scientists have argued for years on a specific place on Mars. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay then. So I thought I'd better clarify okay. that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, the other thing about Martian meteorites that um, perplexes people is that uh, they're not red. <laughs> And that's because they've been excavated from some depth on Mars. 
okay. not been oxidized. And they've been here a while too, probably. Some have. Uh, there, I think there have been several falls. Um, that is witnessed falls on the Earth. Oh really? Uh, yeah, I think Lafayette, Indiana, may have been one. Um, and uh, anyway, so there there have been a few falls, but not very many. Okay. What's the? What, can you talk a little bit about? Um, I think it's a meteorite image project. Yes. So, um, along the vein of uh, getting people to look at their own samples and find interesting features about them, uh, I happened to um, encounter two researchers who were interested in um, studying different kinds of meteorites, mostly stony meteorites, and obtaining high-resolution images uh, of cracks in meteorites. So normally researchers want to avoid meteorites with cracks because those are avenues for um, contamination and the sample might fall apart uh, and so that's not normally a desired sample. However, in this case it is because they want to understand the strength of the asteroidal bodies these meteorites came from. And they have the ability to measure the width and extent and numbers of fractures within a rock and determine its strength and its probability of breaking up in our atmosphere. Um, and is, is that equivalent to like tensile strength of the material? Kind of. Okay. Um, and they, well, one of them in particular, is interested in understanding how the regolith forms on an asteroid. Mm. So, as we know, the a asteroids have been orbiting the sun for four and a half billion years. Some have changed a lot. Some have not. Um, but for the ones that are near-Earth asteroids, they have experienced enough thermal cycles of heating and cooling as they rotate, as they travel around the sun, um, that they actually experience um, a kind of a freeze-thaw um, fragmentation on their surfaces. Oh, okay. And so... Um, one researcher in particular is studying how that occurs. Uh, is it spallation like certain kinds of rocks on the earth or do they crack uh, like pop rocks or do they do both? Um, just how how is that surface layer formed? And so uh, it's a fascinating way of looking at asteroid surfaces from the asteroid pieces we have in our hands now. Um, and so their challenge is to identify which fractures occurred during passage through our atmosphere and which ones were inherent to the parent body. Um, and so it's it's a really fascinating project, and it's a whole new way of looking at meteorite samples. 
That's interesting. I mean, it's it's like I said, I was going into this not knowing much about the meteorite section. It sounds like there's a lot of activities that's going on in the field that that hopefully our contributors and our members can join in with. Yes, yeah, I think so. And um, the thing that's interesting about some of these projects is that they don't require sophisticated instrumentation. Um, the, the best asset is probably um, just people learning more about the particular meteorites they have in their possession mm. and then watching for anything that's different. Interesting. Now, do you have regular contributors or members of, of the section? Um, I wouldn't say we have regular contributors, but we do have um, people who ask questions uh, from time to time, and so um, I try to connect them with researchers that I think um, could benefit from uh, interacting with them. In other words, if I think someone has a, a sample that a researcher would be interested in seeing, I make sure that they can connect. Likewise, uh, if we have someone who has a question, um, I try to connect them to the, the best person who can answer that. Okay, and um, do you publish papers on the findings? Um, not not so much on ALPO findings, just because they're more more in the way of a quick answer. Um, I do put remarks in the meteorite section reports that okay. come out quarterly. Okay, um, you, you pu- so you publish a, a report for the section. It. It's, you know, a small report, and so there might be maybe one little sentence in there. Okay. Um, once the the projects have regular contributors and perhaps are making real contributions, then we can certainly consider actual publications. Okay. What do you see for the future of the meteorite section? Hmm. Uh, I think... Um, there is definitely an interest in learning more about asteroid meteorite connections in general. And the more we can learn about meteorites that we have in our hands here on Earth, the more we'll know about the asteroids when we travel out into space. Um, People are interested in mining asteroids and the meteorites in our collections provide the reference for how to choose just the right asteroid. Do you have a meteorite collection yourself? I do have a small one, yes. What's a small one? (laughs) I have one. (laughs) Well, (coughs) I I have uh, some uh, small samples. Okay. Uh, It's nothing like some of the big collectors or, or anything like that. I could see the meteorite section really doing a lot of community outreach with schools and things like that as well to bring people in. Is that something you do? Uh, well, that's something I do professionally as part of the Lunar and Planetary Lab. Um, there's also another organization that uh, does a great job at that too, and that's the uh, International Meteorite Collectors Association. Okay. And so... Um, I interact with them quite a bit as well. So uh, I'm also trying to um, not duplicate effort. But certainly ALPO members uh, would be fantastic because inevitably 
people want to know, well, where did those meteorites come from? And AFBO members have observed them personally. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Um, do you have any other information you'd like to share about the meteor section, meteorite section? Um, just that uh, trying to locate a meteorite after a bright fireball has been observed is more difficult than it seems. Uh, and that said, there are uh, expert meteorite hunters in the world who do a great job, and usually I just get out of their way. Um, they have uh, Doppler radar data at their disposal where they can go, uh, where, the, where they have an easier time locating a fresh specimen. Um, but for the ordinary person, it's quite a challenge. Okay. Um, until that first piece is found, then then you know, okay, continue to search there. Yeah, because it's going to break up and you have more than one piece probably in the area. Possibly, right. Yeah. That's great. So how could anybody get a con- get in contact with you if they think they found a meteorite or if they just want to chat with you about this? Uh, probably the best way is by email. That way we don't have to worry about time zones um, and they can send it uh, at their leisure, and I can answer when I'm able to as well. Okay. And uh, so if they just contact me at dhill at lpl.arizona.edu, that would be great. And I'd be happy to answer any questions they have. Great. And I'll put the email also in the show notes so everybody has a chance to get a hold of you. Okay. Wonderful. All right. Well, Dolores, I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I want to thank our special guest today, Dolores Hill, for coming on and talking about the meteorite section. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. I really appreciate it if you can rate and review us. Really appreciate it. That brings more listeners to our site. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud. The link is in the show notes, and we're also available on Google Play and Stitcher and practically anywhere else you can download a podcast. If you like the podcast, you can support it by donating to it via Patreon. You can give as little as a dollar a month. If you feel so generous to give $35 a month, you'll receive a one-year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on this here podcast. And with that, I'd like to thank the producer of this podcast, Steve Seidentop, for his generous support of the Observer's Notebook. The link for Patreon as well as the link for the ALPO is available in the show notes. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at at ObserversNBPod. That's at ObserversNB, that stands for Notebook, Pod. If you'd like to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $14 a year. So if you enjoy the podcast for free, why don't you join the ALPO for only $14 a year? You can find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. You can also find the ALPO on Facebook by searching ALPO Astronomy. And this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for The Observer's Notebook. The ALPO is an international organization devoted to the study of the sun, moon, planets, asteroids, meteors, and comets. Our goals are to stimulate, coordinate, and generally promote the study of these bodies using methods and instruments that are available within the communities of both amateur and professional astronomers. Until next time. 
My hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening.